This is One in Six Billion, a podcast about diabetes and genes, with me, Maggie Shepherd, and me, Andrew Hattersley. It was really interesting to think that the same genetic spelling alteration that was affecting the pancreas was also affecting the brain in these patients. So welcome to the latest episode of One in Six Billion. So what we're going to do today is to really learn about how we'd learn more about neonatal diabetes. The original discovery had been back in 2004, and there's been an awful lot that's happened since then. And we're absolutely delighted that one of the people who've really contributed to that, Dr. Pam Bowman, is, is with us today. So could I ask you to introduce yourself, Pam? Yes. Hi. Thank you, Andrew and Maggie, for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm a medical doctor, so I um, spend half of my time doing clinical genetics in the genetics clinic and half of my time in the diabetes research team with yourselves. And I joined the research team way back in 2008. And I think you joined us originally as a junior doctor and then came and did a, a PhD. Is that right? I did indeed, yes. I came to the team at quite an exciting time. It was just after the discovery of the neonatal diabetes genetics and treatment. And it was really exciting to have the opportunity to come and do some work with the team. So yes, I did. I took a a PhD, which was funded by Diabetes UK, a diabetes charity. And that allowed me to learn more about these really fascinating patients Um, So that was the main focus of the work that I did. So one of the things you studied, Pam, was the long-term outcomes of treatment of these patients with neonatal diabetes? Yes. One of the things we did was to follow patients over the decade since they had started treatment with the tablets and come off of insulin. And we looked at the outcomes for them um, over that that 10-year period, which was really interesting. So what we found was that After 10 years of treatment, 90% of these people were still just on the tablets alone. They didn't need any insulin therapy or other medicines to make their diabetes control really good. So that was great news because we knew then that this really was the treatment of choice for people with neonatal diabetes. And I think for patients and for their doctors, that was really reassuring So we saw that the blood glucose control was excellent after 10 years on the tablets. But also a really important thing was was that they hadn't had really very many side effects. And also they didn't have any severe hypoglycemia. So when their blood sugar dropped very low, and that had been a bit of a concern because the doses that we're using in these patients of, of glibenclamide are really much higher than those that we use in type 2 diabetes. And so there had been a question as to whether that would result in hypoglycemia. But in fact, in the whole 10 years and studying 75 individuals, we didn't see any severe hypoglycemia in those that stayed on the sulfonylurea tablets. Yeah, so this result was really reassuring, as you say, because what we had expected from our experience in type 2 diabetes was that the effect would wear off and also that there'd be problems with hypoglycemia. But none of the children had severe low blood sugars, as shown by them either having a seizure or by being unconscious, despite there being over 750 years of follow-up. 
But I think what you did find, and, and when we had some of the patient study days when the families came, that sometimes they did have low blood sugars in particular circumstances. And what were those, Pam? Yes, it was interesting. So some of the patients came to us and said that they were experiencing low blood sugar after eating, but particularly after eating certain types of foods. And in particular, it would be things where there was a low carbohydrate meal. So somebody came and said, well, I've, I've gone on the Atkins diet to try to lose weight. So I'm eating lots of protein and fat, but I'm not eating much carbohydrate. And that's when they found that their blood sugar would start to drop after eating. So that was an interesting anecdote that the patients uh, told us about. And we thought we might like to look into that a bit more. So tell us about those studies, Pam, how you designed those to look at the effect of different foods on these patients' blood glucose levels. Well, what we wanted to do was to try to compare a high-carbohydrate meal with a high-protein fat meal to see if it had a different effect on patients' blood sugars. And I remember trying to design the study with a dietitian in the team and we were in my house trying to make uh, some protein shakes with high protein powder and try to find a way to make a meal that the patients could have. And really, it was awful because these milkshakes, well, they weren't milkshakes, they were protein shakes, they tasted awful. And we thought, well, we can't put people through that. So we actually ended up going for uh, a very simple ham and cheese breakfast, which again, wasn't the best, but it was more tolerable than the protein shake. And we compared what happened with their blood glucose and with their insulin levels when they ate that meal as against eating a high carbohydrate meal with lots of sugar. So the other breakfast that we compared it against was some toast with jam and some orange juice. Yeah, that was a lovely example of a very practical research. And, and I remember that we got the patients in from one of the study days and, and they all agreed to do this. And, and very kindly, their brothers and sisters also helped with the research as acting as controls. They did. And it was real team effort. I can remember having about five or six individuals in our research facility doing these meal tests together and, and the whole team helped with that process. And what did you find, Pam? So what we found was really interesting. The study showed that when people ate the meal, they released their insulin as we would expect because they're on the sulfonylurea tablets. But what it showed was that the amount of insulin that they made didn't change when they had a high carbohydrate meal, so the toast and jam, or a protein fat meal, so the ham and cheese. So what was happening was that their body was recognizing that there was food in the gut and it was responding appropriately to the food, but it couldn't tell that one had higher sugar than the other. And that meant that the same amount of insulin was made, but when there was not so much sugar around, so in the ham and cheese breakfast, we saw that their blood glucose would start to drop. And that provided an explanation for why they might experience those lower sugars with a meal that didn't contain much carbohydrate or much sugar. Yeah, I remember one of the meals at the study day where there was a, 
a couple from Belgium and they said it's going low even when we don't have anything to eat and we thought that was surprising but then it turned out they didn't consider it to be eating if you had cheese because that was normal just to have and obviously cheese was both the combination of, of fat and protein and so that was exactly the same as your high protein meal and that was what was making the blood sugar go low so then that made us be able to give very practical advice to the patients. I think that's another important point that you flagged up, Andrew, that these patients weren't just from the UK, were they, Pam? No, these patients were from all over the world. And indeed, you know, these studies wouldn't have been possible without collaborations and help from our friends in many other countries. So it really has been uh, really exciting to be able to do this work. And so really, a bit as we heard from Emma in the very first episode, the diabetes was pretty well sorted. But we also heard from her when she was talking about Jack that whilst the sulfonylurea tablets had made Jack calmer and more able to concentrate, they hadn't resulted in his learning difficulties going. And I think a key part of your research was to look at how it affected the patients, both with their learning, their education their personalities and you were well set up for that because you'd had training in paediatrics and you had training in psychiatry. Yes it became a real focus for me it was really interesting to think that the same genetic spelling alteration that was affecting the pancreas was actually also affecting the brain in these patients and so it was a focus of my research was to learn more about the sorts of neurodevelopmental problems that these patients had and how that affected families. So what were some of the specific problems that the families had reported? Well, what we found was that families were reporting the sorts of things that Emma and had spoken about in the first podcast. So for most children, there was delayed development, so they weren't meeting their milestones as they were expected to, particularly things like motor skills and speech were when affected. When you say motor, what does that mean? So that means things like walking, sitting, running, jumping, those sorts of things were delayed in comparison to other children of, of the same age. Some children had epilepsy and needed treatment with medication to help with that. And then what started to emerge as time went on was that there were these very severe and, and, and obvious problems in some of the children. But in others, the problems weren't quite so severe, but there were certain things that people would talk about as being difficult. And that was something that was common to many of these patients. And the sorts of things that people would say would be that maths for example was very hard for them and practically speaking things like counting and money and thinking how to count out change when they were in shops and also the other thing that people reported was poor visuospatial awareness and so I remember one family talking about their child would have been in in a shopping center and they couldn't really remember how to navigate and and get themselves from one place to another from just having that visuospatial awareness and those sorts of things were common to, to many of these children and so there seemed to be a specific profile really that we were seeing yeah I, I remember when we were asking them and 
one of the things, as you said, was that they couldn't calculate change. They had to remember that if you gave a pound coin and it cost 50p, you had to remember that it would be 50p change rather than being able to work it out. And suddenly everybody was saying, I've got that problem as well. And, and so it was a very specific change which is occurring because the spelling mistake had changed the channel in the brain as well as in the, the pancreas. Mm, absolutely. And some of the other things that came out from talking to these families were really, really challenging behavioral problems at times, but also problems with attention and being very, very overactive and distractible and fidgety. And that would cause issues at school as well as at home. And many of the children were either in special schools or they needed really quite intensive support at school from teaching assistants and and have modifications in their education to help support their learning. And again, that was something that was really quite common in these individuals. I think one thing that people had talked about was people was whether there was an issue with autism and some of them had got that diagnosis of being autistic and but actually I think you felt that there was a difference between them and and more typical autism. Yeah I think the children that we meet are all very sociable children and there is really lovely social reciprocity with many of them and you know I think there are other traits of autism spectrum disorder in these individuals so there is some of the problems with communication and routines and repetitive behaviors and and those sorts of things but there was a slightly unique personality and the way they were was something quite unique to this group of patients I think. And I remember when we brought the families together for some of the family days that we had in Exeter and meeting a group of these children, certainly remembering how some of them were very aware of everybody's names. They seemed very social. So patients like Jack, even though he hadn't seen us for a number of years, remembered everybody's name within the team. But certainly that hyperactivity that you talked about, I remember certainly the children being really hyperactive and how much of a challenge that might have been. Yes, absolutely. And I think I've had the privilege of going to visit many of these patients at at home in their own homes to do the research. And it's really come out in visiting these families, that hyperactivity and the inattention and the impulsivity that, that really is challenging for families, but also for schools as well to be managing that. And how's your research really helped the families in terms of looking for the specific difficulties that these individuals might have? Well, I think one of the things that was quite clear in the beginning was that these things were going under-recognized. So in our initial research, we looked at how many children had clinical diagnoses of these sorts of neurodevelopmental disorders, and really they were being under-diagnosed and they were being under-recognized. And one of the main things I think that's come out of the research is 
that we've raised awareness and recognition amongst families and amongst doctors and teachers that this is part of this condition and it's because of the genetic alteration it's because of this affecting the channels in the brain as well as the pancreas that these children have these sorts of difficulties so it's not to do with having diabetes from a young age it's not to do with the effects of the glucose but it really is very specific to the genetic alteration and having that awareness has then allowed people to um, access assessments and proper multidisciplinary support for those sorts of difficulties. And that's really been helpful for families, I think, in terms of accessing the support they need for their children to be supported in their education. I think that's absolutely right. And there was one specific thing that you noticed, which was that the children who were treated very early in life seemed to be different from those who made a change to the sulfonylurea tablets later in life. Do you want to just talk about that a bit? Yeah, so it was an interesting observation that people who transferred onto the glibenclamide in the first few months of life appeared to be less severely uh, affected in terms of the neurodevelopmental problems than those who had had many years of insulin treatment before they transferred onto sulfonylureas. And part of that probably relates to the fact that when when we're babies, our brains are growing very, very rapidly and all these connections between the, the nerve cells in our brain are forming and it's a, a time when there's a lot of growth happening. And I think our idea is that if we can introduce the drug at a time when that's happening, then it might have a positive impact on all those neurodevelopmental processes and so the earlier we can do that the better because of that rapid brain growth in early life. So really the earlier that we can identify these patients give them the correct genetic diagnosis and put them on the right treatment this sulfonylurea tablet specifically the glabenclamide which we know crosses the blood-brain barrier then that's all the better. Yes absolutely it's a real reason why making an early diagnosis is crucial for these patients. It's not just about the diabetes, but we think it can have a really quite a significant impact on their neurodevelopment as well. And I think one of the things that you've realised that there still is likely to be some problems and that there is a need for considering other specific treatment. And I know you've had some ideas on how you might go about trying to find something to help those children with who have learning difficulties as a result of the potassium channel once they've had the benefit that they can get from sulfonylureas. Yes, absolutely. As we've heard, the benefits from sulfonylureas for the brain are less complete than the benefits for the diabetes. So they are left with these residual behavioral and neurodevelopmental problems. And really, it's trying to think of other ways that we might be able to help these specific parts of the condition. And so for the future, some of that work will be around thinking about other potential drugs that might be able to get into the brain and act on potassium channels in the brain. And so that's definitely some exciting work for the future that we are developing at the moment. I think there's something called repurposing. Do you want to explain to our listeners what that involves? Yeah, so repurposing is when you look at drugs, medicines that are currently used in other conditions, and you take them and put them into a a new group of patients, because there might be some 
property or characteristic of that medicine that you think makes it very well suited for this new group of patients. So we are looking at different sorts of drugs to see if that might be possible for patients with this type of neonatal diabetes, which is very exciting. So how do you identify those potential drugs that have been used for something else that might have a benefit for neonatal diabetes? Well, I think it's all about thinking about the mechanism of the drug and how the drug works. And in the case of neonatal diabetes, we know that the spelling alteration is affecting a channel, potassium channel, and that that channel is present in the brain. So if there are other drugs that are being used currently that we know act through similar mechanism by binding to those channels, then we can try to use those to see if they'll do the same thing in patients with neonatal diabetes to try to overcome that genetic defect. Brilliant, Pam. So I think what we've heard from you is is really how after the initial discovery, there's still so much to be learned and heard how you've made enormous progress with the conventional treatment and also then how you plan to go forward and find new treatment. And it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming along. So I think, Pam, your expertise and previous experience in paediatrics and psychiatry has really added a different dimension to the work that you've been able to do to really benefit this group of patients. And just thank you for the amount of work that you've done with these families. And as you say, visiting the families at home, you've gained additional insights. And I know a lot of your work's taken many, many hours with these patients to really give them the full and thorough assessment. And I think all the families are hugely grateful for that. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it's really a a great privilege to be part of the team and to be able to work with these patients. And I'm really excited for the future and, and what that might bring in this area. So it was really lovely to chat with Pam about all the amazing work that she's done in neonatal diabetes and really helped us understand far more about the condition and the wider aspects. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and what particularly the neurological aspects is what the patients and their parents really feel that that's where they want help and that's where they would like to, to learn more. And I think it also flags up for me the real benefit in our team of having people from different backgrounds and different areas of expertise. With Pam's interest in psychiatry and paediatrics, she's been able to add a huge amount of added benefit for our work. Yeah, absolutely. If you're all narrow and kind of mini clones of the other investigators, it it really doesn't help. And and what Pam has brought is that understanding of psychology and psychiatry and particularly in paediatric psychology and psychiatry, which is really helpful. And I'm very aware that the families have found it super helpful to have Pam and other colleagues really investigating these issues in such detail by going and visiting the families at home and really getting an understanding of what the issues and difficulties were for them. Yeah, and and she's also not just working in this country. There are people all over the world have contributed to her studies and some of the challenges have been to try and make something that can be used in Italy and Norway and America and, and England that allows assessment to, to mean that the study can involve patients from all over the world. And it's exciting to know that this work is still ongoing. There's still improvements we think we can make for these families with future studies, potentially. Yes, I, I think it's a really exciting idea that Pam's brought in this idea that we can look at other drugs and 
with the, I think she's working with Craig Beale, who's an expert in the potassium channel, to try and test them all and see which ones to, to take into patients. And that really gives hope for, for the future. And I think we'll move forward with our next podcast to hear a bit more about other future options for patients with neonatal diabetes and what else we're going to do going forward. Yes, because I think the thing with medical science is it never stands still and you can never be complacent. There's always something more to find out. And I think actually that's what makes it really exciting to be part of this team because we don't stand still. We're always moving on to uh, look at well, what else can we do and what else can we find out to benefit these patients. I think also looking for expertise from new areas to help us. And I think we'll hear from experts in biochemistry and and also clinical genetics, which will be involved in the next podcast. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast and we'll be back in two weeks time. Anybody diagnosed before nine months should be tested. And to make sure this happens, in Exeter we've set up a special fun for people who can't afford it. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to find out more, please visit oneinsixb.com.